from this day forward, it's going to be America first! America first! This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and members-only bonus content, please visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman program, The Young Turks, The Trump Cast, On the Media, The Bugle, Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin, and The Bradcast with guest host Angie Coiro. It looks like we're about to enter into a brand new era. I want to read to you a uh, a piece that was um, published. This was back in 2008. And actually, I think it was before that. Uh, I, I did something like this on the air, just kind of pulled it out of my head. And then a guy named John Gray in Cincinnati, Ohio, did a much more elegant version of it. And and I have no idea if his followed mine or if it was just great minds think alike or if we were all thinking in those terms back then, because this was um, uh, just, you know, a month after George W. Bush, or excuse me, after Barack Obama. Uh, no, this was at the end of the term of George W. Bush. Uh, Obama was running for president, but there had not yet been an election. But here it is. Uh, it's a day in the life of Joe middle class Republican. And I want to share this with you and then contrast it with what Trump is trying to do. Joe gets up at 6 a.m. to prepare his morning coffee. He fills his pot full of good, clean drinking water because some liberal fought for minimum water quality standards. He takes his daily medication with his first swallow of coffee. His medications are safe to take because some liberal fought to ensure their safety and work and work is advertised. All but $10 of his medications are paid for by his employer's medical plan because some liberal union workers fought their employees for paid medical insurance. Now Joe gets it too. He prepares his morning breakfast at bacon and eggs today. Joe's bacon is safe to eat because some liberal fought for laws to regulate the meatpacking industry. Joe takes his shower, reaching for his shampoo. His bottle is properly labeled with every ingredient and the amount of its contents because some liberal fought for his right to know what he was putting on his body and how much it contained. Joe dresses, walks outside, and takes a deep breath. The air he breathes is clean because some tree-hugging liberal fought for laws to stop industries from polluting our air. He walks to the subway station for his government-subsidized ride to work. It gives him considerable money in parking and transportation fees. Saves him. You see, some liberal fought for affordable public transportation, which gives everyone the ability to be a contributor to our society. Joe begins his workday. He has a good job with excellent pay, medical benefits, retirement, paid holidays, and vacation, because some liberal union members fought and died for these working standards. Joe's employer pays these standards because Joe's employer doesn't want his employees to call the union. If Joe is hurt on the job or he becomes unemployed, he'll get a worker compensation or unemployment check because some liberal didn't think he should lose his home because of his temporary misfortune. You'll note this is uh, uh, eight years old. It's gotten worse. Anyway, at noon, uh, in other words, not all of these benefits are available to, to even Joe. At noontime, Joe needs to make a bank deposit so he can pay some bills. Joe's deposit is federally insured by the FSLIC because some liberal wanted to protect Joe's money from unscrupulous banksters who ruined the banking system before the Depression. Joe has to pay his Fannie Mae underwritten mortgage and his below-market federal student loan because some stupid liberal decided that Joe and the government would be better off if he was educated and earned more money over his lifetime. Joe is home from work. He plans to visit his father this evening at his, fa- his farm home in the country. Gets in his car for the drive to dad's. His car is among the safest in the world because some liberal fought for car safety standards. 
He arrives at his boyhood home. He was the third generation to live in the house financed by the Farmers Home Administration because bankers didn't want to make rural loans. His house didn't have even have electricity until some big government liberal stuck his nose in where it didn't belong and demanded rural electrification. Those rural Republicans would otherwise still be sitting in the dark. He's happy to see his dad, who's now retired. His dad lives on Social Security and his union pension because some liberal made sure he could take care of himself so Joe wouldn't have to care for him. After his visit with dad, he gets back in his car for the ride home. He turns on a radio talk show. The host keeps saying the liberals are bad and conservatives are good. He doesn't tell Joe that his beloved Republicans have fought against every protection and benefit Joe enjoyed throughout the day. Joe agrees. We don't need those big government liberals ruining our lives. After all, I'm a self-made man who believes everyone should take care of themselves just like I have. And that was the, the Joe Republican as written in 2004 by John Gray of Cincinnati, Ohio. And, and good on you, John, for that. So that's the, you know, this is the world that we're living in. And it looks like it's about to be completely deconstructed. Jane Mayer in The New Yorker, uh, on the 21st of this month, November 2016, uh, writes a piece called The Dark Money Cabinet. She says, on Tuesday night, David Koch was reportedly among the revelers at Trump's victory party in a Hilton hotel in New York. In a tweet on October 18th, Donald Trump promised, I will make our government honest again. He said, believe me, but first I'm going to have to hashtag drain the swamp. So did he? Well, this is what Jane Mayer writes. Vice President-elect Mike Pence, the new transition team chair, announced that Mark Short, who until recently ran Freedom Partners, the Koch brothers' political donors group, would serve as a senior advisor. Michael McKenna, the president of the lobbying firm WMR Strategies. McKenna, uh, Trump is relying on him for, for advice regarding the Department of Energy. McKenna's clients include Coke Companies Public Sector, Division of Coke Industries. Michael Cantanzaro, a partner at the lobbying firm CGCGN Group, is the head of Trump's energy transition team and has been mentioned as a possible energy czar. Among his clients are Coke Industries and Devon Energy Corporation. Also widely discussed is Harold Hamm, the billionaire founder of the shale oil company Continental Resources, a major contributor to the Coke fundraising network. Myron Bell, an outspoken climate change skeptic, heads Trump's transition team for the EPA. He's been funded by fossil fuel companies, including ExxonMobil and Coke Industries. And it goes on. So there is that. And then, of course, Betsy DeVos. And the last, you know, this is a great piece over uh, by Alan Singer over at Huffington Post. Uh, Donald Trump moves to destroy public education. He's appointed Betsy DeVos, a billionaire uh, out of Michigan, as the secretary of energy. Uh, he writes, right-wing billionaire Betsy DeVos has spent decades and millions of dollars in campaigns to privatize, defund, and destroy public education in her home state of Michigan and in the United States. Uh, much of DeVos's money comes via her husband, who inherited the Amway Health and Beauty Products Company. Um, she's personally the chairwoman of the Board of Alliance for School Choice and is the head of the All Children Matters Political Action Committee that she and her husband founded to promote school vouchers, tax credits to businesses that give private school scholarships, and candidates who support these causes. DeVos' money also goes, back, uh, goes to back Republican candidates who are opposed to abortion and same-sex marriage. Peace to all the philosophers. Professors and educators uh, that take a pay cut to save us. The mind is a terrible thing to waste. 
education should be free. The rich get richer cause the poor's uneducated. Civil degradation, clip their wings and there's no way of elevating. An ignorant mind could be devastating. Especially if you think real life's on the television. I speak my mind and I'm dedicated. We need education to raise a smart, better nation. And that's the truth. For God, my witness, there should be free healthcare and college tuition. The possibilities are endless. Politico with a great story on to what extent Donald Trump has riddled his cabinet and his administration with his donors. It is amazing and record breaking. So let's go to the numbers. They explain that more than a third of almost uh, 200 people who have met with President-elect Donald Trump since his election last month, including those interviewing for administration jobs, gave large amounts of money to support his campaign and other Republicans this election cycle. Now, if you follow the show and hence have access to information, you're going to say, of course, but a lot of people don't know this. I, I know someone personally who doesn't follow the news closely. The other day she said, oh, well, I, I thought a lot of his cabinet positions aren't taking any salaries. They're so patriotic. <laughs> no, 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 because they're there to loot the government. They, they're looking for a return on their investment. They don't need their piddly couple hundred thousand dollars salary. They're going to make hundreds of millions of dollars. Carl Icahn is now is in charge of regulatory reform, which means deregulating everything. He made over five hundred million dollars on the day that he was appointed. That's how much his stock went up in the market because they thought, oh, he's going to deregulate all of his own businesses. <laughs> They're looking forward to this self-dealing. Why didn't the stock market's up? They're like, great. There no, there's no cops left on Wall Street. Let's all go nuts. Okay, let me give you more specific numbers here. Together, the 73 donors contributed $1.7 million to Trump and groups supporting him, according to a political analysis of Federal Election Commission records, and $57.3 million to the rest of the party, averaging more than $800,000 per donor. Okay, so you're going to go meet Trump and ask for an administration position? What's your average donation? Oh, $800,000. Okay, welcome in. Now you could have a meeting. Uh, donors also represent 39% of the 119 people Trump reportedly considered for high level government posts and 38% of those he eventually picked, according to the analysis. So you can say, hey, the people he's having meetings with are speculative, et cetera. But the ones he actually picked, 38% of them were donors. I'll give you historical context on that in a second. But first, both Trump haters and lovers should go to this petition. It's tytnetwork.com slash stop. We're asking him to stop putting your donors in your cabinet and in your administration. If you're going to drain the swamp, this ain't the way to do it. So if you know a Trump voter, send the petition to him because they should love this one. Because you didn't want his donors put in his cabinet. You didn't want that same crooked system. That's the rigged system you hated. That's why you chanted drain the swamp. And what's he doing? He's taking it and stuffing it all into his cabinet. TYTnetwork.com slash stop. Ask him to stop putting those donors in there. Okay, now let's give you context. Politico says, while campaign donors are often tapped to fill comfy diplomatic posts across the globe, the extent to which donors are stocking Trump's administration is unparalleled in modern presidential history. Now, I've been telling you this uh, throughout, as I was telling you about one uh, ad administration pick after another for Trump. 
They're saying, look, man, it's not like this didn't happen before, but you get Ambassador Luxembourg or, or to Barbados, hey, man, if you give a lot of money, you might get Ambassador to France. So that is outrageous. He's like, ambassadors? No, 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 no. Important positions where we could all make money off of this stuff, Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of Commerce. I'll give you details on that in a second. The access and appointments, Politico explains, are especially striking given Trump's regular boasting during his campaign that his personal fortune and largely self-funded presidential bent meant that he would not be beholden to big donors as many of his rivals would. And he kept saying during the debates, if you remember, I had a Trump voter tell me this. He said he was up on that stage, he says, didn't I give you all money? Didn't you do all exactly as I told you to do? He's right. He did give them money. They did do what he wants. Now Trump is doing the same thing. Well, then what the hell did you vote for him for? Okay. <laughs> Again, one more quote from Politico here. Trump has stocked his cabinet with six top donors, far more than any recent White House. So there's 38% of all of his administration, administration positions that he's picked so far. And then his cabinet is, of course, far more select. It's a small number of people. Of those, six are top donors. Unprecedented. No one has ever been this crooked before, coming in uh, right from the beginning, saying, oh, yeah, 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 my donors, come on in. Loot the place. Take whatever you like. Take the good China. Take the carpets. Take whatever you want. More, more importantly, of course, they're going to take all of our taxpayer dollars. They're going to make sure their taxes are cut, but somebody's got to pay the taxes. You are. They're going to enrich themselves, but you'll see. Okay, now let me give you specifics on who the people are. The biggest donor who, was, who has met with Trump since the election is Todd Ricketts, Trump's pick for Deputy Secretary of Commerce. Ricketts hails from the family that founded uh, TD Ameritrade, uh, note to self, never use that, owns the Chicago Cubs and is among the Republican Party's top benefactors. They handed Republicans more than $15.7 million for 2016 and more than $26 million in previous cycles. The family also organized a super PAC called Future 45 that became the largest unlimited money group supporting Trump. Well, you know, you give that much in legalized bribes and you get your ticket punched. So come on down, Todd Ricketts. You're not part of the administration. Let's go to the next candidate here. Trump's choice to lead the Department of Education, Betsy DeVos, and her family, heirs to auto parts and multi-level marketing fortunes, spent $10.4 million this cycle, including $445,000 to Trump's joint fundraising committee known as Trump Victory, and one of the super PACs supporting him. She and her husband, Dick, have contributed to the campaigns of 17 senators who will now vote to whether to confirm her. <laughs> Look at this, systemic corruption. We don't have to allow private financing of elections. We can do public financing. We sign their checks, they work for us. Betsy DeVos signs their checks, they work for Betsy DeVos. Not only did they buy the president, but they bought so much of the Republican Party that the people confirming her are people she already paid. We're not done. Now the McMahons. Linda McMahon, the wrestling magnate, whom Trump named to helm the Small Business Administration, gave $6 million to a pro-Trump super PAC. She and her husband, Vince, are also the largest donors to Trump's foundation. I was told by Donald Trump that giving money to charitable foundations is deeply corrupt. Look, kidding aside, I criticized Hillary Clinton's foundation because I thought there was systemic corruption there. But Trump is taking the systemic corruption to a whole new level. And he's gotten rid of the layers of bureaucracy and so and deniability. He's like, I don't need deniability, I'm Donald Trump. He's gonna be brazen about it. You gave me $6 million? Okay, congratulations, you now run this department. 
Oh, the Ricketts family, you gave tens of millions of dollars? Congratulations, you now run this. Betsy DeVos, go ahead and destroy the Department of Education who you can't stand public education. I'll put you in there, because why? You gave me tens of millions of dollars. That's what you gave the Republican Party. We're not done. Labor Secretary designee Andy Puzder, CEO of the parent company of Carl's Jr. and Hardy's fast food chains, and his wife gave $160,000 to Trump victory and more than $600,000 to other Republicans this cycle. Uh, well, you know, compared to the others, that seems small. You only bribed them $760,000. <laughs> so sad, baby. Uh, but remember, he also is against the minimum wage and would like to destroy labor rights, hence your new labor secretary. Okay. Trump's pick for Treasury Secretary, investor Steve Mnuchin, personally chipped in $425,000, but was arguably responsible for almost everything Trump raised as the campaign's finance chairman. So you get the best job, Treasury Secretary. You raise all the money for me, here you go, Treasury Secretary. Okay, now, finally, beyond the donors joining Trump's administration, two of his biggest benefactors perhaps wield more influence over the transition than any individual donors in history. Rebecca Mercer, who with her father, the hedge fund billionaire Robert Mercer, spent more than $22 million backing Republicans just this past cycle, is closely aligned with chief strategist Steve Bannon, and special counselor Kellyanne Conway. And she was taken to a crucial role picking cabinet nominees. Robert Mercer gave $2 million to a pro-Trump super PAC. I told you about the Mercers before. Now, uh, the rest of the media, Politico does a great job here, but hardly ever covers these guys, especially on TV, because the corruption in, in politics leads to more TV advertising for the politicians. So TV loves the corruption, so they never tell you about the Mercers. The Mercers were in the, in the box, you know, those luxury boxes at the RNC with Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon and basically told Trump, you're going to get rid of your current campaign manager, you're going to put these two in charge, and he did. Why? Because they gave $22 million. That's why. Why do you think Ted Cruz endorsed Donald Trump at the end? Because his biggest donor was Robert Mercer. He'd gotten $13 million from him. So when Robert Mercer said, heal Ted Cruz, you know, who prides himself on not healing him, oh, I will fight all the Republicans. I will fight Washington. Robert Mercer, oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, absolutely, sir. Oh, of course I'll endorse Donald Trump. Because the donors rule these guys. Systemic and personal corruption. They're going to break every corruption record there is. Trump voters, I got bad news for you. He was just kidding, man. He's not going to drain the swamp. He's going to fill the swamp. Look at all these alligators he just invited to the party. If you thought Crooked Hillary was bad, wait till you get a load of Crooked Don. Returning to the show today is the Russian-American journalist Masha Gessen. She wrote an article late last week in the New York Review of Books that I've been recommending to everybody because I think it's so important. It's called Autocracy, Rules for Survival. I have lived in autocracies most of my life, Gessen writes, and have spent much of my career writing about Vladimir Putin's Russia. I have learned a few rules for surviving in an autocracy and salvaging your sanity and self-respect. 
it might be worth considering them now. She joins me by phone. Masha, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Jacob. I can't say I'm happy to be on the show. I, I, I wish your show were over by now. Well, there are small consolations, and one of them is talking to people who've thought about this in a useful way. And to me, that means you. Thank you. So your first rule for surviving in an autocracy is believe the autocrat. He means what he says. Explain that a little, because Trump is already backing away from, you know, building a wall. Maybe it won't all be a wall. Maybe it'll be a fence. We're not going to deport everybody. I mean, did he mean what he said? You know, um, my uh, my line is always, you know, I wish I hope I'm wrong. I don't think that um, the fact that he is um, oscillating on some of the specifics of his claims is that important, unfortunately. I mean, it's better to not build a wall than to build a wall, obviously. But I think the, the, the sort of the larger force that brought him into office and, and the larger force that he represents, um, that's, that's what I mean by, you know, he, he means what he says. He means that he's going to unleash a war on immigrants in this country. He means that he is going to have total disregard for international obligations. He means that he's going to, that he thinks that war crimes are a good thing. And the military should, should should be directed to carry them out. The specifics of those war crimes and the specifics of his war on immigrants may not be as important as his larger message. And he hasn't wavered in his larger message. That's the part of it that I've been most focused on because it was quite active over the weekend. But is the part of his message that is it's not fair to criticize me. And that took the form of him lashing out against the New York Times, claiming they're unfair and then saying things that are totally untrue about them. His sort of implying there might be legal action against Harry Reid, his suggesting that demonstration against demonstrations against him are somehow illegitimate. I mean, he means what he says when he says this is unfair. Oh, absolutely. And he's going to do something about it. And again, you know, he may not be able to do anything about libel laws because there's no such thing as federal libel law. That doesn't mean he's not going to unleash a war in the media. He already has. And he's going to continue with ever greater power and, and ever greater impact. Your, your third rule in this piece is that institutions will not save you. I found that particularly dire. And you, you write, if I can just quote your piece about the press, many journalists may soon face a dilemma long familiar to those of us who have worked under autocracies, fall in line or forfeit access. There is no good solution, for journalism is difficult and sometimes impossible without access to information. Right. So um, two things about institutions and specifically the media. I think that when I was first thinking about Trump, and I was, uh, I think we talked about this in the summer, that I was really trying to sort of exercise my imagination purposefully to try to figure out what a Trump presidency might be like. And my first thought was, oh, well, but um, but the United States has much stronger institutions than any of the countries that I'm more familiar with. So it's not going to be so terrible. But I think a closer look at those institutions tells us two things. One is that they are not quite as strong as we think, and they have been sort of depreciating for decades. And especially, I'd say, over the last 15 years. Talking about the press in particular, yeah. I'm not talking about the press in particular. I'm actually talking about uh, about American institutions of democracy uh, in general, you know, with, with an ever greater concentration of power in the executive branch, the, you know, the, the, the deadlock Congress, all of that. I mean, the, 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 those are all, all examples of degradation of American institutions that precede Trump yeah. uh, and in some ways predict Trump. 
And the other, and specifically about the media, and this is, to me, that's the most depressing thing, as I think it is to you, which is that um, there really isn't a way to sort of say, um, to solve this, this this problem. And again, we saw this during the campaign, because uh, when when the media face an impossible dilemma, it really is an impossible dilemma, right? There's a right answer to the question, do you want to fall into line or forfeit access? And the right answer is, of course, we're not going to fall into line, but that does mean you forfeit access, and that means that you become worse at doing your job than you should be. Right, because you fund, you don't know what's going on in the same way. Exactly. And, you know, there's a, there's a great temptation and there's a very good reason uh, to, to become polemical, to, uh, to, to verge into activist journalism, which I think is a fine tradition, but it doesn't make up for lack of information. I mean, looking at, at Putin's Russia, one could say, I think, that civil society beyond the media has suffered tremendously just as a, as a force that can, can challenge him in any way. But civil society, when we're talking about beyond the press, you know, the whole the whole range of non-governmental organizations and including political organizations of every kind. I mean, they're stronger here. They're a lot stronger here at the starting point. They have much better legal protections fundamentally because of the Constitution and the First Amendment. And don't you have a, maybe a different prediction about who's going to win this fight? I, I have more hope than I, than, uh, than I did in Russia. Um, but I think there are certain things. I mean, uh, a friend of mine wrote that we need to repeal Goodwin's law. Huh. Goodwin's uh, law, obviously, being that you shouldn't automatically compare things. That you should avoid comparing thing anyone to to a Nazi or to Hitler. Right. So I think I think we should instead the opposite of Goodwin's law and basically start comparing everything to Nazi Germany and to other examples of the catastrophic uh, rise of an autocrat, specifically for the purpose of perhaps creating a first historical precedent when a society actually effectively resists the rise of an autocrat. Um, so that doesn't um, exactly answer your question, but it sort of, it, 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 I think it begins to answer it. I mean, I think that uh, civil society, in terms of legal protections, isn't actually as strong as we think it is. I think that um, it's very easy to make life much more difficult for any number of American non-governmental organizations Actually, you know, one 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 useful place to look is is a country like Israel, which has been cracking down on civil society uh, now for a number of years um, by re- restricting funding, imposing more and more stringent reporting requirements. Something like that weakens civil society. Uh, but I think it also does something bigger, which is that you know, in addition to um, to getting in the way, uh, to interfering with the work of, of, of specific organization, organizations, it, it damages the public sphere in really profound ways. And that's really what autocrats do, is they destroy the public sphere. And so if we see on the one hand sort of a greatly weakened media, and on the other hand, institutions of civil society that are engaged in a daily battle for survival... Then what we're losing in that in that battle, even if the uh, if the organizations succeed in surviving, what we're losing is the public sphere. I'm going to tell all you fascists you may be surprised. People all over this world are getting organized to bow to lose. You fascists are bound to lose. 
We all understand that at a time like this, it is more important than ever to keep our independent media well-funded. Of course, not everyone can afford to chip in, so take a moment to think about your own circumstances and ask yourself if you are in a position to stand up when you know others can't. And if your budget's a little bit bloated, what might you be able to cut out to make room to support all of the independent media that you depend on? Maybe you're spending too much on your cable bill, your coffee habit, your cell phone, whatever. It's not exactly building a victory garden, but maybe there's something you can cut back on so you can redirect those funds to your favorite news sources who depend on supporters like you. On my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal is the default, but I know a lot of people hate them, so I would be happy to set you up with a recurring payment on your credit or debit card using Square. Just shoot me an email, j at bestofleft.com, and I'll send you an invoice to get you started. If you sign up to donate six bucks a month or more, you get access to the members-only podcast, which includes commercial-free versions of the show, as well as some bonus content that I make and tell some stories, mull over some big ideas. So if you get value out of this show and think it's worth supporting it, then I hope you will make the move to become a member today. So again, you can support this independent media show by going to the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks to all of those who have already signed up, and thanks in advance to all who will. People out there in color marching side by side. With a taxonomy of Trump tweets, cognitive linguist George Lakoff believes that the press must understand how Trump uses language if we're going to responsibly report on those tweets and not just magnify their misinformation. He's come up with a few categories for thinking about Trump tweets, and the first is preemptive framing. The idea of preemptive framing is to frame an issue before other people get a chance to, to put the idea out there first. For example, quote, The only reason the hacking of the poorly defended DNC is discussed is that the loss by the Dems was so big they were totally embarrassed. Right. And the idea is that the hacking of the DNC was the default of the DNC. Also, the idea that the Dems lost so big when, in fact, it was one of the narrowest losses in history. So that's all framed. So you have to go back and deconstruct the tweet before you can even address it. Exactly. You have to understand what the framing is and what the framing is he's trying to avoid. You know, he said, in addition to winning the Electoral College in a landslide, I won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. (laughs) Right? No reason to think anybody voted illegally, but what he's doing is trying to reframe the popular vote. So let's move on to another category you talk about, the diversion tweet. The diversion tweet occurs when there's some major issue that's come up. And what he'll do is do things like attack Meryl Streep. You know, Meryl Streep, one of the most overrated actresses in Hollywood. She is a Hillary flunky who lost big. The idea is to get people on TV talking about Meryl Streep, not talking about the real issues. In this case, conflict of interest and the Russian hacking. Mm-hmm. Before that, he had done the attack on Hamilton. You know, the cast and producers of Hamilton, which I hear is highly overrated, <laughs> should immediately apologize to Mike Pence for their terrible behavior. I think at that time, the big issue was his $25 million settlement 
over uh, the Trump University case. So that all the people on uh, New York radio and TV and so on are going to talk about Hamilton instead of talking about uh, Trump University. Let's move quickly on to your third category, the trial balloon. Right. Trial balloon. He says, the United States must greatly strengthen and expand its nuclear capacity until such time as the world comes to its senses regarding nukes. He's going to see how people react to this, and then he'll know what to do in the future. People were confused. They talked about, you know, nuclear proliferation a little bit, and then it went away. And then the fourth category is deflection, Mm -hmm. where you attack the messenger. So they attacked BuzzFeed, uh, CNN, the BBC, for putting out the uh, discussion of the Russian leaks. Putting out the entire dossier is arguably premature. It is premature on the one hand. On the other hand, he's going to be in office in a week. So there was one from Wednesday this week that you say embodies all four of these categories, preemptive framing, diversion, trial balloon, and deflection. I will read it. It is, intelligence agencies should not have allowed this fake news to leak into the public. One last shot at me. Are we living in Nazi Germany? First, preemptive framing. This is fake news. Secondly, diversion. It's going to be discussed whether or not it's fake news or should have been leaked rather than the content. Right. There's deflection, which is attacking the messengers. And then you get the trial balloon. Will the intelligence agencies be stopped from doing this? Are they working like Nazi Germany? Obviously, you don't think the media are handling these utterances very well. What do you suggest that we do? The media is addicted to breaking news. So we have to give the tweet first. That's the breaking news. Wrong. Because that allows him to manipulate you as a reporter and manipulate the truth. So you're saying don't report on the tweet? You begin by telling the truth and giving the evidence for that truth. Then mention his tweet, point out that that contradicts the truth, and then talk about what kind of tweet this is. You know, you say, this is a case of diversion. Here's what he is diverting. Quickly, don't have a panel discussion about it. You know, just do it and go on. Keep going back to substance and the truth. Also, what is the effect of his tweeting on the truth? He's trying to say, usually, that this truth is a general truth. And that's another thing that I should add to this list of the things he does, is to take a specific case and say that it's the general case. Give me an example. There's a rape or a murder, a shooting by a Mexican. He says, they're rapists and killers. He does that all the time. What do you call that? Salient exemplar. So this sort of extrapolation from one example is the salient exemplar. I like that. And let me give you one more little thing. Sure. There's a difference between direct and systemic causation. So the lawyer at his press conference, who is dealing with conflicts of interest, took up the question of emoluments. Suppose another government books rooms at Trump's hotel. Is this a conflict of interest? What she said was, quote, This is not what the Constitution says. Paying for a hotel room is not a gift or a present, and it has nothing to do with an office. It is not an emolument. Now, in general, paying one night for a hotel room might not be. Somebody who's dealing with the government, paying for a month of hotel rooms in a hotel that enriches Trump, 
is an emolument. It's indirect causation like that. Mm-hmm. You look at not just the particular of the frame, but the way in which that frame functions as part of a system. So she says one night in a hotel room is the frame and thereby removes from the table any kind of enrichment you can get from people spending any amount of money in your hotel. Exactly. And what allows this to happen is every language of the world in its grammar allows direct causation. No language of the world in its grammar has systemic causation. There's a very good reason. Languages are learned by children. And little children learning languages don't know about systemic causation. For example, if I say I took a drink, you know, the assumption is I took a drink at a particular time at a particular place. That is direct causation. And then you say, I take a drink. There's a tone there that suggests you didn't just take one, but you take one regularly. Right. That is systemic. So she used a particular simple grammar and thereby created a precedent for us to discount all hotel usages from there on out. Exactly. So, we just saw President-elect Donald Trump's first press conference. And uh, you know what was interesting about this press conference? It was not a press conference. Press conferences do not have cheering sections. Press conferences do not have cheering sections. And I'm not even going to try to map out all the layers of obnoxiousness and bullshit that we just absorbed, but to me, the two most important things that happened were, number one, the part where he still refuses to release his tax returns or divest from his businesses, and number two, the part where he is straight up bullying these journalists, and then the other journalists raise their hand and ask the next question as if that didn't just happen. How? What? How? Why? What are you doing? Every other reporter should have walked out at that moment or else remained silent until he asked that CNN dude's question. This should not be acceptable. And look, I don't want to fall into the trap of making the press out as villains because they're falling prey to Trump's villainy. I have tremendous respect for the work that journalists do. I know how hard it is to sustain that work. So I'm not trying to make you out as the scapegoats, but I do need to talk to you because you're the only people in that room that I can reason with. So look, I said in my last video, we all need to ask questions we've never asked before about the work we do from now on. This is the Chardy McDennis era of American politics. There is a whole new game being invented right now. And if we don't step up to play our part in writing the new rules for this game, then the other side will be writing all the new rules for us. If you see the journalist next to you getting bullied by Donald Trump and you don't push back, in that moment you are letting him write the rules for how you will be treated from now on. And for the sake of your profession and my blood pressure, we cannot let that happen. That dumpster fire passing as a press conference 
must not become the new rule. And I'm not saying that's an easy proposition or that I know what the perfect strategy is, but you have got to, at this point, ask questions about your work that you've never asked before. You can't keep clinging to old norms while the other side abandons them. We all right now need to accept that we are in a new game and step up for our part in writing the new rules. Because if we keep trying to play checkers while they play Chardy McDennis, we're just gonna keep getting stomped out over and over for the next four years. Having somebody making wild decisions that make no sense, that benefits nobody. Oh, yes, right. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. Here's a quick tip for Buglers. Um, do not, I repeat, do not read out the transcripts of Trump's inauguration mm. speech in a German accent. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely do not do that. Not even for fun. Just don't, just especially not this bit. We assembled here today and are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power from this day forward. A new vision will govern our land. <laughs> From this day forward, it's going to be America first! America first! Don't do that. Do not... Do, I, I, I fell for the temptation. I feel... I feel... I feel dead inside. Oh, wait, did you do the German impression already? Because that's how I heard it. <laughs> that's a, I thought that was... Oh, that's not? Okay. He kept saying America first. Which is when have we not been like thought about our interests first? But he kept so that was like the the key phrase, America first, which for me was weird because it was like strange to hear a preview of the words that will be said to me during a hate crime. Because <laughs> like oh, that's going to be the okay. It's not just going to be USA, USA. It's America first. Ugh. It was, um, as a non-American, obviously I have no right to uh, hold an opinion on your democracy. Or I didn't, until Trump said, we will de get, determine the course of America and the world for many, many years to come. To me, Horry, he seems to be basically expressing the worldview of an unusually incubated four-year-old. <laughs> and the essential message of Trump's speech seemed to be, there's no I in isolationism. Right. <laughs> 
Well, also, he said, um, when Americans are united, we are unstoppable, which that's some super villain nonsense. I mean, that's <laughs> like that's not even trying to pretend that he's a good guy. That's like straight up. Like, who wants to be unstoppable? So we meet again, my noble heroic friend. This feud has brewed forever, but tonight it will end. And then there will be nothing left of you but a memory. My old foe, arch rival, nemesis, and enemy. You see, my granddad invented tying last to train tracks, cackling, twisting his mustache. And my dad, his spawn, carried it on in the 60s, holding hostages with atomic bombs. I come from a long line of this kind of people. I represent a third generation of evil. Courses through my blood, this love of chaos and killing so much more than just a criminal. I'm a super And now it's time for some choice words about Donald Trump's tiny inauguration. On Friday, I spent roughly nine hours from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. on the streets of drizzling Washington, D.C., inside and outside the Secret Service checkpoints at Donald Trump's inauguration. Look, I've been to every inauguration since January 1997, assessing supporters and protesters to gauge both size and enthusiasm. It's fun and a perk of living in Washington, D.C., now, I wasn't planning to write about what I saw on Friday. It's a little out of my sporty lane until I saw Donald Trump press secretary Sean Spicer say on Saturday that, quote, this was the largest audience ever to witness an inauguration period, both in person and around the globe. Then, as his voice shook and his face became mottled, he shouted, these attempts to lessen the enthusiasm of the inauguration are shameful and wrong, end quote. The next day, Trump familiar Kellyanne Conway said that Spicer was merely stating, quote unquote, alternative facts. These are not alternative facts. These are lies. This is what is called gaslighting which means when you manipulate someone by psychological means into questioning their own sanity. It's unconscionable behavior for an anonymous internet troll, let alone the press secretary of the president of the United States. It's one thing for a campaign to say things that are demonstrably untrue. That's been the reality for as long as we've had presidential campaigns. But it is chilling when people who hold the levers of power will look straight at a bank of cameras and lie. So here's the straight truth from someone who walked every inch of the inaugural ground on Friday. This was the smallest inauguration I've ever seen. I was tweeting that and saying it on camera during the day on Friday before I heard those observations justified by both aerial shots and Metro Rider statistics. Here I am on Democracy Now! saying just that. And I don't know whether it's the fact that Trump's approval ratings are in the 30s right now. I don't know if it's because he made all these promises to his supporters and he's bringing in the same crew of Goldman Sachs billionaires. I don't know if it's all the corruption and the scandals that are coming in, but you don't feel that enthusiasm among the Trumpites. I mean, we were chanting on the line coming in and Trump people just had their heads down. It's also worth saying that the Trump people I've seen are not the wealthy Bush types. I mean, these are folks who've made their trek. They definitely come from a different class element who are coming out here and they're not energized. And frankly, that's a really, really positive point to take from today. I said that 
because I saw the empty stands that were supposed to be filled with throngs of Trump supporters. I said it because I saw how easy it was to ride public transportation and drive into downtown. I said it because of the surprisingly sparse smatterings of red baseball caps, as well as my conversations with local souvenir salespeople who were overloaded with MAGA merchandise that just wasn't moving. It was obvious the people just weren't there. I can understand why Sean Spicer was clearly ordered to lie. It's not just because of Trump's obsession with insisting that things in his life that are small, his hands, his net worth, whatever, are actually huge. The motivation for these reckless and easily provable lies are found in the second part of Spicer's statement. Quote, these attempts to lessen the enthusiasm of the inauguration are shameful and wrong, end quote. The fear of waning enthusiasm among the Trump faithful is real and well-founded. Not only does he enter office with the lowest approval ratings in the history of recorded numbers for an incoming president, not only does a significant majority dislike the way he has handled the transition of power, but his base supporters are looking at his appointment of billionaires, Goldman Sachs folk, and D.C. swamp dwellers, and already wondering if they were sold a false bill of goods. I spent a good part of Friday looking for people in those red caps and speaking to them. I cannot say loudly enough how different their mood was from the 2000 and 2004 people with whom I spoke at the Bush-Cheney inaugurations. The Bushies were confident, ready to argue, and even fight. The famously pugnacious Trumpites were unsure, confused by the small turnout, and disoriented about how to respond to being on security checkpoint lines and finding themselves outnumbered by chanting protesters. Walter, a Trump supporter from Virginia, said to me, This isn't what I thought it would be. I thought this was going to be like our version of Woodstock. Instead, I'm just cold. Susan from West Virginia said to me, On the plus side, I guess it can't get worse. And I'm still glad we're going to get the Supreme Court. But today, this is sad. End quote. Raymond from West Virginia shrugged his shoulders and said, I thought it would be like one of the rallies. Instead, it's this. Raymond then asked if I was Jewish. I said, yes. And he said, just checking. I said, come on, Raymond. Even your anti-Semitism sounds demoralized. He looked down sheepishly, and I almost felt sorry for him. In addition, the Secret Service and TSA in charge of the checkpoints, both groups maligned by this administration, were cracking jokes about the president-elect as we were going through the metal detectors. One TSA agent even took a button from me that said, Solidarity Trump's hate. He wasn't confiscating the button. He took it to wear later, as he told me. If it wasn't for the thousands of protesters who came out for both permitted and non-permitted demonstrations, I wonder if the day would have had any life at all. I know many are making jokes about Sean Spicer, Kellyanne Conway, and their embrace of alternative facts. On one level, you laugh to keep from losing your mind. It's like the scene in Woody Allen's Bananas when the crazed dictator says, From this day on, the official language of San Marcos will be Swedish. Silence! In addition to that, all citizens will be required to change their underwear every half hour. 
underwear will be worn on the outside so we can check. Furthermore, all children under 16 years old are now 16 years old. But jokes alone are not going to cut it right now. It would have been so easy for Sean Spicer to say, hey, it was a rainy Friday, the crowds were small, time to get to work making America great again. The fact that they can't admit something so small raises the terrifying prospect of what they will say when the question is not about crowd sizes, but about whether or not to go to war. The great historian Howard Zinn once said, all governments lie, and that's true. But I don't think there's ever been a group of people willing to set the bar so low. Unlike the Bush people, they're not even bothering to construct false evidence for their lies. They're just betting a majority of the country won't care. We have to be better than that. We have to be better than them. The future depends on it. to assess this deluge is to look at Kellyanne Conway's remarkable alternative facts discussion with Chuck Todd. I know you've heard the clips, but listen again, because I'm really going to break this down here. In case you missed it, Chuck Todd on Meet the Press, the same belated style we've seen in the way of too many media outlets, he's finally catching on that reporting and interviewing are not the same as taking dictation and sharing copies. After Sean Spencer's bizarre, unhinged attack on the press for allegedly misrepresenting the record-setting throngs that turned out to huzzah our new dear leader, they had dared to show, you know, pictures that showed quite clearly it wasn't that well attended. Now, that's not a matter of counting noses. Trump claimed the crowd stretched 20 blocks from his bad comb-over over to the Washington Monument And maybe in the bubble of his incredible narcissism, it looked like that. But people with eyeballs and cameras and airplanes all saw that area and said, no. We're talking empty viewing stands along the walking route and vast stretches of open ground along that 20 blocks as he desecrated the oath of office. So Spicer did his best imitation of a puff adder, and he went before the press spitting and gasping and accusing them of colluding and conniving and in general being very bad people, which takes us back to Chuck Todd, who confronted Kellyanne Conway with Spicer's roster of untruths. He didn't say lies. He kept saying falsehood. Chuck, the word is lies. But stop a minute to savor the very idea of asking Kellyanne Conway about telling the truth. But I digress. So here's the bit of beauty that they created together. Chuck asked why this is the foot Spicer wants to step off on with the press and the American people. But the first time he confronts the public, it's a falsehood? Chuck, I mean, if we're going to keep referring to our press secretary in those types of terms, I think that we're going to have to rethink our relationship here. Whoa, that went downhill quickly. Did you hear what I just heard there? You want me to stop beating you up? I may just have to go find another girlfriend. You call me out on my behavior. I will punish you with my absence. I will change the rules. I am in charge. 
That is, I am not exaggerating. That is classic abuser language. Classic abuser language. Anyway, so she tries to distract him with some tale about how the press tales lies, so he pushes her. I did answer No, you did not. You did not answer the question of why the president asked the White House press secretary to come out in front of the podium for the first time and utter a falsehood. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office on day one. Don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. Don't be so dramatic, Chuck. See, Chuck is the problem here. Not Trump's original lies. Not Spicer's meltdown. Not her own evasiveness. Chuck is the problem. Now that is what you call a classic ad hominem attack. Don't answer the question. Attack the questioner. So we go back to the big payoff here. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. To Chuck's credit, he does not give up. Look, alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. And then she really cuts loose. This is a classic what they call gish gallop. And that is when you throw so much spaghetti at the wall, there is no way to detangle it all, let alone pull out a noodle and contemplate it. Now, remember, he has asked very specifically and several times now why Spicer would spout easily disproven, quote unquote, falsehoods at his first press meeting. And away she goes. Chuck, do you think it's a fact or not that millions of people have lost their, their plans or health insurance? Do you think it's a fact that everything we heard from these women yesterday Do you think it's a fact that millions of women, 16.1 million women, do you think it's a fact that millions don't have health Do you think it's a fact that we spent billions of dollars on education? These are the facts that I want the press corps to cover. Now, with all this, here's my favorite part. And you did not answer the question. I did answer the question. No, you did not. You did not answer the question. She lied about answering a question about lying. She was asked about lying and she lied. Now, this is the same kind of technique that we're seeing from Donnie and his henchmen and Han shows. Don't answer, deflect. Don't defend, attack. And make sure that nobody can possibly see that wall. Throw all the spaghetti you can at it. Thus, this flurry of action that we've been seeing in, what, 24, 36 hours? Donnie hurled health care, immigration, abortion rights, and citizen access to government under a fleet of buses. And there's more to come. And he put a ridiculous number of advisory nominees up for confirmation all at once, where Republicans in turn put ridiculous time constraints on questioning so that true inquiry would be diluted and shackled. It's worked so far. As for the media covering all this, Newt Gingrich has proposed, Media Matters picked this up, by the way, that's where I got it, Gingrich has proposed that press conferences be turned into town halls where the press would share seating and question time with non-press, interested citizens. Now, that's kind of a twofer for them because President Love Me, Love Me, Love Me will get his daily dose of adulation from his fan club, which he would die without. And it would, again, dilute access and response. So many fronts to fight on. And some unsolicited advice, but hey, I got the mic. Pick the fronts that matter the most to you. Find those who are battling to fight that and support them. Throw them a bit of money if you got it. Sign up for action updates. Now, I've picked, for example, the ACLU, 
media outlets, both traditional and new, and abortion rights groups. Those are mine. Those are the ones that I have picked because I know others will pick others. And together we get it all covered. So you pick your own one, two, three, whatever you have the bandwidth for, that number of causes. And focus, focus, focus on your chosen causes because that is what the Trump wrecking crew does not want you to be able to do. We just heard clips today from the Tom Hartman program highlighting all of the progressive victories we now take for granted. The Young Turks discussed the Trump cabinet preparing to loot the country. The Trump cast spoke with Masha Gessen about her rules for surviving an autocracy. On the media broke down the taxonomy of Trump's tweets with linguist George Lakoff. The Bugle gave some advice about how not to read Trump's inauguration address. Dave Zirin on Edge of Sports Radio spoke to the mood of the crowd at the inauguration, and guest host Angie Coiro talked on the broadcast about the classic abuser behavior exhibited by Trump and his team. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and now we'll hear from you. This first call is a follow-up from a past conversation Matt from Pittsburgh had called in. He was discussing his new environmental nonprofit, and he casually mentioned in his message his long commute. So, I seized on that, and so then I and a couple of other callers gave some advice about the true cost of commuting. Hey, J-Man, it's uh, Matt out here in Pittsburgh. I was just listening to the most uh, recent podcast you released, and uh, you listen to the the listener comments at the end, and uh, it's awesome. I mean, it's great. I appreciate the advice. I appreciate the support. Two points I want to make. Uh, one is on the commute. The last two calls I had in, I was bitching and moaning that I drive way too far one way. Uh, but the second uh, comment there, I apologize, I forget the gentleman's name, um, mentioned a couple good resources. And, and literally, like, right after I listened to the show where you played my comment, mentioned not getting burnt out, cutting down your commute time, you encouraged me to take some action there. And then this guy just reinforced stuff. Uh, you know, what I've done. So another resource I found was uh, Mr. Money Mustache. And when you calculate the, uh, you know, uh, amount of money in a 44-mile one-way commute, losing an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and 30 minutes per day, it's hundreds of dollars a mile. It is absolutely insane. So I am currently in the midst of moving within two miles of work. I traded my car in for a bike. I still have the car, so technically I guess it's not a trade, but I'm going to be riding 99% of the time, and I'm pretty excited about it. I'm actually renting off of uh, uh, somebody else, so I, I didn't go out and get my own place and you know have too much square footage you know, for one dude to handle. Kind of a little co-op living situation to help each other out, which is also kind of cool. I try to live very minimally, so a, a basement room with a bathroom is more than I need. The second uh, point, which also is relevant to the second caller, I totally dig what you're saying about supporting another platform. Um, so out here in Pittsburgh, locally, just to put some substance to this, uh, Westmoreland Cleanways has been an organization I love. Last year, they, they pushed out for proper recycling 
1,250,000 pounds of just televisions. That doesn't include all the other crap that comes in, the e-waste, the batteries, scrap metal, and all the other stuff. And uh, on my Facebook page, there's actually a picture. There's literally one acre of e-waste that still needs moved, and that is exponentially growing every weekend and during the week when people bring things in. So donating my time and money there has been a huge local effort. Uh, I mentioned in previous calls, I posted my own e-waste cleanups. I posted my own battery drives. So again, I always say I try to stay modest, but I just want to give substance to what I'm saying. Now, speaking on the platform, yes, you are right. You know, uh, when you try and gain support, in my humble opinion, for uh, any cause, whether it be my 501c3 or anything that you awesome people are trying to do out there, I think of it uh, as like an epicenter. So you start in the middle, right? Epicenter of an earthquake. So the most impact and the, and the most likely to get a positive response you know, area would be right in the middle. Friends, family, like organizations, the city. So I'm with you. Now, I don't know where this is going to go. Uh, right now, I'm currently in talks with other organizations that have a broader outreach that share the same environmental mission. Uh, the Nature Conservancy, the Clean Air Council, and also, just side note, I'm type 1 diabetic, so I'm going to roll this up into it, because getting out, enjoying the great outdoors, really helped me to manage my blood sugars, cut weight, so I want to try and give Mother Nature uh, her health back, much like she gave to me. So, you know, I'm trying to get a hold of Sierra Club, I want to talk to the Ocean Conservancy, although not, you know, local to his point. We are talking about tens of thousands of, of people, tens of thousands of members combined in these organizations. There is a resource we can tap into to keep this mission going. So, again, I hope that helps, you know, kind of paint a picture of what I'm trying to do. A lot of information, I just kind of have to wait until I get the okay from the business lawyer. But if, if anybody's interested, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it, happy to be a resource to help you start your own movement. I mean, you know, I'm going to blog about all this. Uh, you know, I'll have resources for you so you can follow my vision, my, my, my uh, trail here, know what to expect. Yeah, that's pretty much it, man. But, you know, again, I always tell you, kudos on the show. Totally dig it. Um, I'll have to find some other time other than a commute <laughs> to listen to you. But having potentially three hours back in my day, I think I could make some time for best of the left, buddy. All right, everybody stay cool. And, uh, you know, thanks again for the support, the advice. Keep it rolling. Um, you know, power to the people, man. Hey, Jay, this is Evan from Texas. I was just calling to uh, share a little story with everyone about how Trump is already affecting the lives of people who are close to me and maybe people you know. I have a friend from college who was born here in the U.S., but his father's from Iran. And so last year, my friend went to go visit family there, and he ended up becoming engaged and married to a longtime pen pal of his there. And he spent a good chunk of last year trying to get her here as soon as possible, but they've had some difficulties. And now with the recent executive orders that Trump is giving where they're limiting refugees and giving visas to people from countries that include Iran, he doesn't know what his future holds for him. He's a hardworking person, and this is already affecting him. He's not even Muslim. His wife isn't even Muslim, but... She has to pretend to be because she lives in a place where apostasy is very much frowned upon. And this is what Trump is doing to our country. It's, it's tearing people apart.
And this is really happening, and we're going to have to get together and fight back and resist. So thank you for having this uh, program so we can all listen, get informed and angry, and find a way to do about it. Thanks, Jay. Have a good day. Hi, Jay. This is Megan from Seattle, and I'm sure you're getting lots of calls about the Women's March. Um, I have something I think is important to say. Um, I attended the march in Washington, D.C., as I am here attending college. And uh, while the issue of it being primarily a white women's march has been discussed, the sexism of the march hasn't as much. Um, I'm a cis woman, but some of my trans friends have pointed out that the general equating of genitalia and gender, you know, was at the march, um, especially with the whole um, pussy culture. And women's rights are important, and the rights of people with vaginas is important, but those are not exactly the same thing. And all, all the pussy slogans make complete sense um, with regards to Trump's comments, and it's not inherently transphobic, but much of the overall march was focused on women's rights and reproductive rights, often implying that genitalia equals gender, um, which is just not true. Thanks so much for the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, to Matt... I could not be more happy that things uh, worked out as well and as quickly as they did. Uh, you know, a couple of little pieces of advice, and all of a sudden it turned his life upside down, it sounds like, and um, becoming the environmentalist extraordinaire that he was always born to be. Uh, so, very exciting news. I, like Matt, uh, very much endorse the philosophical underpinnings of the Mr. Money Mustache blog. I, I, I can't say that I co-sign every word he's ever written, but uh, very much the uh, the essence of where he's coming from, the philosophy that he espouses is uh, is very, very much in line with mine. And it's, it's not all entirely political. It's, you know, social and economic and, and those sorts of things don't necessarily fit into the structure of this show very often. Uh, but when they do, I am very often drawing a lot of inspiration from his writings. Secondly, I'm glad to hear from Megan and, and her comments. Interestingly, I don't know why, but I actually haven't been getting a lot of messages uh, from people about the Women's March. If you have thoughts of your own you want to share uh, about your experience or, or perspectives in any way, I, I would love to hear them. But to Megan's point, I uh, agree. I totally heard that criticism not much, of course, because people don't talk about uh, the cis-centeredness of anything very much, if they even know what it is or what that concept is all about. Uh, but at least one place I heard, you know, just a touch of criticism about the pussy hats and not that everyone was consciously trying to be exclusive against trans people, but that more that the ignorance uh, of not realizing that that could be anyway. You heard Megan's message. You sort of get the idea. Uh, what I will add to it, though, is that in addition to following all the shows that I do to make this show, I also try to stay abreast of, you know, op not, not even opposite perspectives, but sort of the 
other versions of progressivism, some, sometimes, you know, straight up conservative shows too, but there is, you know, a, a sizable rift within feminism between the factions called, by some at least, liberal feminism versus radical feminism. Of course, neither of those labels tells you anything about which is which and what anyone believes, but radical feminists are often uh, referred to, usually derisively, as TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, and they are the ones who would be the ones very much consciously focusing on genitals and the biological relationship to gender and trying to make that connection, which, uh, frankly, I find very retrograde and and sort of ignoring everything we've learned in the last several decades about gender and how it works and the fact that there is a difference between sex and gender. So in one of the radical feminist shows that I listened to, they really were, you know, they, they were excited about the Women's March, but they were a little put off by how inclusive it was. And and so, you know, it was unfortunate that, that they were as inclusive as they were, but they were really excited about those pussy hats and about all of the focus on the vagina and how that really drives home the point that women are all about what's between their legs and everything else kind of flows from there, so to speak. And really, I, uh, I, I just can't wrap my mind around that line of thinking. And in this show, the, the way they describe their sort of the underpinnings of their philosophy is that essentially they are frustrated that anyone feels differently than they do on this because they think that this is a, a an issue that we already solved 40 years ago. And so they came to, you know, many, not all, but, you know, many of the people in that camp are sort of from that age of feminism. And they're like, hey, I was around in the 70s and we solved this issue back then. And I've never changed my mind since, so I must still be right. And I think, I don't know, are, are you not aware of how much we've learned about trans people, like their existence, sort of the underpinnings of how that works and how gender works or, or anything like that? You're just completely blind to all of that. And don't get me wrong, I, I understand much of the underpinnings of their arguments. I won't go into it in great detail, but I just wanted to point out that as as Megan was at least just mildly frustrated with the cis-centeredness of the march, there are those on the other side who were totally stoked about the cis-centeredness of those pussy hats and any other references to genitalia as the calling card of womanness. And I tend to agree with a trans friend of mine who I was speaking with just after the Women's March, who was saying, you know, I don't really get that other perspective. It seems so reductionist to say that womanhood is nothing but genitalia, that that seems to be profoundly anti-feminist to, to try to reduce womanhood down to that level when it seems like the battles we've been fighting all this time is about saying how we are so much more than that. So there we go. As I said about the march, we're here, we're angry, we're going to let you know about it 
and we're all going to walk in different directions at the same time. As I say, keep the comments coming in on that topic or anything else. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past